Okay. There was a really well-known author. He had a talk show, and he made this way-out statement on his talk show one day. He said, it's not God's will to heal every single time. Now, he admitted that he wasn't a theologian, but he did influence a lot of people. So that was going to do a, you know, some problems. So Angela decided that she would just write and talk to him about it. And uh, she wanted to find out, how did you come to this conclusion that God doesn't heal every time? Well, we were shocked when his staff answered. He didn't answer her, but his staff did and gave a lot of scriptures to Angie. You sent a whole lot of scriptures, but they were all on persecution. And he related those persecution scriptures now to healing. Now, unless his, someone is taught the truth, they often get the scriptures on suffering, persecution, confused with, with healing. And when they do, what they do is they give up a precious promise from God that was bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. And it's just a shame when that happens. Now, sickness is a curse, and Christ redeemed us from the curse, Galatians 3.13. Now, I want to say that again because if there's anyone here that's, that doesn't have that inside of you, you know, we have been redeemed from the curse of sickness. Now, that's literal. We've been redeemed from that. Jesus took that on his own body on the cross. So we don't have to be sick, literally don't have to be sick. But most Christians now, they don't take advantage of that because when symptoms come on their body, they don't know that they have a choice. It surprises me how many Christians have no idea that they have a choice whether or not to be sick. Now, after the cross, God never intended us to suffer from sickness ever. Now, I'm going to call this Bible study, How Are We Supposed to Suffer as a Christian? Because we know the Bible tells us to suffer. There's a suffering teaching in the body of Christ that has put so many people in bondage, and it's done so much damage. And for that reason now, this really can be a very important lesson for you to hear, to keep you free now from the curse. And that's what it's all about. God wants us to be totally free from the curse. He paid a huge price for that. Now, you've probably had someone say to you at some point in connection with sickness or maybe in connection with a premature death or, or maybe a calamity, and they say, well, you're just suffering for Jesus, just suffering for his glory. Now, if you haven't already heard this, you probably will at some point. So that's why I wanted us to touch on it in this Bible study. Something should really go sideways on the inside of us, should just twist in our stomach when we hear that we're suffering for Jesus when we're sick you know, or when we're in lack, when we lack something that we need, because it's a violation of God's will, total violation. When we suffer from sickness, or when we suffer maybe from a premature death in the family or a calamity, God gets absolutely no glory from that. He doesn't get glory from that. This is completely outside of his will. Now, I'm going to have us look at the scriptures that people in suffering teaching most often use for their basis. Most often, it'll either come from Philippians 1.29 or it'll come from Philippians 3.10. Because without an understanding now of what Paul is saying here, it will definitely leave people in bondage. Philippians 1.29 tells us it has been granted to you to suffer for his sake. Now, I can see why some people would read that and think, oh, my goodness, you know. It has been granted to you to suffer for his sake. And then Philippians 3.10 says, oh, that I may fellowship in his suffering. Now, these scriptures put so many people in bondage if they are misunderstood or are misappropriated. So we have to understand what it is that Paul is saying here. Now, God very clearly said this to me some years ago. He spoke it so clearly that I was just standing there waiting and listening, and I wrote it down, and I've used it so many times. He said, when we understand the scriptures, it will set us free. But we can study all day long, and if we're misunderstanding or misappropriating the word, the very scriptures that could have set us free will, in fact, put us in bondage. And when God that spoke that to me, I remember thinking on it for so long and realizing so many people are in bondage because they misunderstand the scripture or they misappropriate it. Now, the objective of this Bible study is to straighten out some of the misconceptions that we have about suffering. So today, number one, we're going to look at how to suffer in a godly way for Christ's sake, because the Bible does tell us that we're to suffer. And also, we're going to look at how we're supposed to suffer and how we're not supposed to suffer. We need to look at both. There's ways that God tells us to suffer, and there's ways that the Bible tells us not to suffer. Now, if a person can hear this, I'm going to promise you it'll make all the difference in the world whether you walk in victory or whether you walk in bondage. 
Okay, I want us to look at Philippians 3.10 scripture first, but it tells us to fellowship in Christ in his suffering. Okay, how do we fellowship in Christ's sufferings? Do we nail ourselves to a cross and bear the pain physically, you know, uh, so that we can fellowship with him in the suffering? Some people do that. It's been a number of years ago now, but we knew about these men in the Philippines who actually had themselves nailed to a cross and they were drugged through the streets of the Philippines in order to fellowship. They said this was our way to fellowship with Christ in his suffering. Now, the United States may be a little more sophisticated about it, but I can promise you there's still a lot of non-scriptural things that have caused us to miss out on some of the blessings of God, and it goes on right here. So today now, I want us to look at these scriptures, and I want us to really get hold of them because it'll make all the difference in the world to you. In 1 Peter 3.18, it says, Christ died for sins once for all of us, the just for the unjust. In other words, he became our substitute. He paid it all because we couldn't do it for ourselves. So Christ paid it for us. Okay, now, if he did this for us, then how on earth do we fellowship or join in with him in the suffering of the cross? Now, stay with me because I really think this will help you to understand. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, the scriptures tell us that Levi, Abraham's great-grandson now, who became the father of the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament, he paid tithes in the loins of his great-grandfather Abraham. Okay, listen to what that's saying to us. When Abraham paid tithes to God, the Bible says that Levi paid tithes with him at the same time, even though it was going to be four generations later before Levi was even birthed. He did it in Abraham. He was the seed of Abraham, therefore he paid those tithes through his great-grandfather Abraham. Now this is a beautiful picture of our being inside of Christ in his death on the cross. When Jesus suffered on the cross, all of us down through the ages now who were ever going to become a, a child of God, we were crucified inside of Jesus. We suffered death in him. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14, it tells us, one died for all, therefore all died. Okay, I want you to hear what that's saying because sometimes we read past these things and we don't really take it in. One died for all, therefore all died. Okay, we need to circle that. Circle that in your Bibles. When we belong to Christ, we died in him when he died. Therefore, the way we suffer and fellowship in his suffering, according to Philippians 3.10, is not by experiencing personally all that he went through on the cross. That's not how we do it. We fellowship in his suffering by identifying with his death and resurrection by realizing that when he died, we died inside of him. And that's why Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified in Christ. When Jesus was crucified, those of us who were ever going to receive him later as Lord were literally crucified inside of him at the same time. We suffered with him in him on the cross, just exactly like Levi paid tithes in Abraham. Christians need to hear that. And that's how we fellowship in his suffering. He did it for us. Therefore, when we become his, we literally died with him in him when he died. Now, as we accept what he did and we fellowship with him in that cross experience, that's going to take away our sin, it takes away the guilt, and it takes away our consequences. Okay, now what makes our dying in Christ so significant? Why is it that important for us to know that we died when he died? It's when our old sin nature died. It literally died in him on the cross. Okay, now, Romans 6 tells us why. When we fellowship with him in his suffering, it doesn't mean that we suffer in the same way in which he suffered. It means that he did for us what we absolutely could not do for ourselves. Now, we don't have to die for our sins because we actually suffered death when he died. Our old sin nature died in him. Therefore, in reality, we no longer have to sin anymore. I want you to think about that. When we died in him, we no longer have to sin. Romans 6 verse 7 says we died in Christ. When someone dies, they're free from sin. When somebody's dead, they're not going to sin anymore. And we literally are, are dead when, when we receive what Christ did for us. We died in him. And verses 11 through 14 says, Consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lusts. Do not present the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and present the members of your body as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin is no longer master over you. Okay, when God tells us sin is no longer master over us, that's the truth. Whether we receive it or whether we don't receive it, after we receive Christ as our Savior, then sin should no longer have mastery over us. To fellowship in his suffering simply means to appropriate what he did on the cross. We come to the place where we appropriate what he did and realize that we don't have to yield to that old sin nature anymore. We don't have to. We do, but we don't have to. That old sin nature is dead. Now, the pain that we suffer now is in just saying no. That's where the pain is when we have to say no, no to our flesh when it's wanting to do something outside of God's will. Now, when our mind is renewed to this truth, then we're going to quit thinking that we're going to have to suffer for something that Christ has already paid for for us. When Christ has paid for it, we're in Christ. We no longer have to pay that price if we just know it and we start walking in it. Now, 1 Peter 2, verse 21, tells us that Christ is to be our example on how we are to suffer. Oh, Christ is our example telling us how we're to suffer. Not only was he our substitute on the cross, but he's also our example of how we have to live it out. Okay, if he's our example, then we've got to look to his life to find out all the ways in which we're called to suffer and all the ways in which we're called not to suffer. People just, they make up their own mind, okay, I'm supposed to suffer this or I'm not supposed to suffer that. But the only way we're going to know for sure is when we get into the Word and we find out how the Word is telling us we are to suffer and how the Word tells us we are not to suffer and in all the ways that we're not called to suffer. I see people suffering all the time in ways they never should have to do that. But it's because they don't know what the Word of God is telling them. And God has clearly spelled it out in the Word. And we will not walk in victory until we finally understand exactly what we're being told in the Word. I want you to think with me. How did Jesus suffer during his three years on earth before the cross? Okay, number one, Christ did not suffer in the area of sickness. You're not going to be able to find even a hint of physical infirmity on Christ's body during his time on the earth. He never suffered in the area of sickness or disease. Now, anytime someone suffers in the area of sickness or disease and claims that he's doing it for the glory of God or claims that he's suffering for Jesus, that's a slap in God's face every single time. And yet I've heard so many people say that. And it comes from one of three things. It either comes from spiritual pride, being prideful that they think they're doing that for God. Or number two, it comes out of ignorance. They just don't know what the word says. Or number three, it's just a cop-out. They don't have an answer, so they just use it as a cop-out. There is no way to suffer for God's glory through sickness without taking away from the cross experience because sickness was completely taken care of on the cross, completely taken care of, and it's finished. Now, when Paul listed out ways in which he suffered for the cause of Christ, he never once listed sickness, you know. He never said, well, I, I suffered this for Christ's sake by being sick. Never did he say that. Now, I'm not trying to say that Paul was never sick, I'm sure maybe he was at times, but he knew when he was sick that he was not suffering for Jesus by being sick because sickness is outside of God's will. Every time Paul listed ways in which he suffered for Christ, he named being beaten, he said he was shipwrecked, he was mocked, he was scorned, he was laughed at, he was ridiculed. His list of suffering now for Christ's sake were all of the external and internal persecutions. That's what he was naming. And that's your key word, persecutions. He was persecuted for Christ, but he never listed anything under the curse as being something that he was suffering for the glory of God. He doesn't mention that even once. Now, it grieves me to read books about Christians now who maybe they're paralyzed or afflicted, and you hear them saying that they're going to Teach the world that God put that on them to give them a greater ministry. And I've heard that so many times in my years. If it takes being sick or afflicted to have a greater ministry, Jesus would not have qualified. He wouldn't have even qualified because he wasn't sick or afflicted before the cross. 
Now, some people argue that God sent that sickness on them to suffer for Christ's sake because they got to witness maybe to a nurse or a doctor or someone in the hospital, and they got saved. Listen, God will take what's meant for evil, and he'll use it for good. He tells us that in Genesis 50, verse 20. But he didn't send it or leave it on us for his glory. Those things are from the enemy, and the enemy is not God's messenger boy, never has been and never will be. And it really grieves me to hear someone, uh, even preachers at times, I've heard this, say that God just reached down and took this person to bring glory to himself. You know, and that puts so much fear on people. I, I know people who are so fearful that God's going to take their child or God's going to take their mate, you know, and they'll come home one day and the child or the mate will be gone. Listen, God's way will never motivate fear. It's the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. It's not God. Okay, so the number one way that Christians never suffer before the cross is by suffering some physical ailment. We're never called to do that. Therefore, we're never called to suffer for God's glory with sickness or disease. Now, if he didn't suffer that way, then we're certainly not called to suffer that way. Now, 1 Peter 2 verse 21 says that Christ is our example of how we're supposed to suffer. So just look at how Jesus suffered before the cross, and that's going to give your example of how you're supposed to suffer. Okay, next is number two. And before the cross, Jesus never suffered poverty. Now, some people will argue and they'll say, oh, yes, he became poor. Well, what they're doing, they're trying to quote from the scripture in Philippians where it says that Christ emptied himself of all the riches of heaven in order to come to earth as a man. And yes, he did give up his riches in heaven for a season. But before the cross experience, he never suffered poverty. Every need he had was made every single time. And when he needed to pay for his taxes, there was a coin in the fish's mouth. When he needed to feed the multitudes, he blessed and multiplied the, the loaves and the fishes, and he, he fed thousands, you know. There was enough money in his treasury that when Judas was stealing out of it, the other disciples didn't even know that there was any money missing. In fact, it was such a common practice for Jesus to give to the poor that when Judas went out to betray Jesus, the other disciples just thought he went out because he knew somebody needed money. Later in Luke chapter 22, verse 35, he said, When I sent you out without purse and bag, did you lack anything? He was asking his disciples. We know that while Jesus was ministering, he had 12 men, some of them with families. He was providing for all of their needs. He even asked them, During the years that you were with me, did you lack anything? And they said, We lacked nothing. Jesus never suffered poverty. And he's our example, yet some denomination used to make their leaders take a poverty vow to always live in poverty. <clears throat> and I've known people who were in churches where that was required of them. When Jack and I first married, our first pastor, he told us that in his very first church after they married, they got a very small salary. He said they barely could make ends meet. And he said the parsonage and the furniture was in horrible shape. And so they were so excited when this lady called the church and said, I have this beautiful dining room set that I want to donate to the parsonage. Well, the dining room suit never came. And so our pastor said, I finally called the executive board. And I said, what happened? We were supposed to get a, a beautiful dining room set. And they said it was too nice for the parsonage, so we sold it. You know, I mean, you could tell it had been years after that. He, he was, you'd had many uh, churches since then, but it still hurt because he knew it was so wrong. Christians too often have a poverty mentality, but that's not scriptural. It is God's will that you have every need met. God doesn't expect you to ever have a need without it being met. Now, I'm not saying that that happens, but it's not God's fault. God has provided. Psalm 35 verse 27 says that the Lord delights in the prosperity of his servants. He delights in that. Now, that doesn't just mean money, but money's definitely included. God delights in our prosperity, body, soul, spirit, finances, every way possible. Deuteronomy 8.18 even says that he gives us the power to make wealth. Not that it's going to come another way other than God's way. He doesn't give it the world's way. But it comes by seeking first, it says, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then it says, then all of these things will be added. God's way of prospering us is kind of like a tennis match. Someone volleys the, the ball over the net, and they hit it back, and they hit it back. That's the way giving is. God gives, and then we give back. And then God gives, and he gives back. And any time we stop that, you know, it's supposed to be a perpetual motion. 
But any time we stop that process anywhere along the way, it gets out of sync. <laughs> we'll find it out of sync. He's not going to give us the power to make wealth and then call us to suffer lack for his glory. It's just not going to happen. Okay, now Jesus, our example in suffering, he wasn't sick before the cross. He wasn't in poverty before the cross. Okay, what else? No, number three, Jesus never suffered the consequences of any sin in his life. He never sinned. And it's never his will for us to suffer the consequences of sin. He never intends us to, to, to sin and suffer the consequences of sin. He's already provided for us not to have to do that. And that's why he tells us to repent instantly. <clears throat> it's not that we won't fall at times, but that means that we need to instantly repent, get on our knees, and get those sins under the blood. Now, 1 Peter 4.15 makes it clear that there is nothing godly about suffering when it's the result of some sin in our life. It could be just a bad attitude. It could be not giving our employer a full day's work. But God is wanting us to recognize these sins and stop it at the door because he wants to bless us. And he knows that he can bless us with no sickness. He knows he can bless us with no, no poverty. There is nothing godly about suffering when it's a result of wrongdoing. So if it's the consequences of a person suffering finances or suffering for some wrongdoing, and they think, oh, I'm just suffering for Jesus, they'd better do some soul searching. You know, they'd better be honest with themselves because they're going to open some doors to things they don't want to open doors to. One of the enemy's biggest deception is because it's so easy to excuse sin. And I want you to think about it. We think, well, we don't really excuse sin. We know, but I'm going to tell you what. You can sin and do it so often and get so comfortable with it that you don't pay any attention. It shocked me to find out that King David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And he didn't even realize when Nathan the prophet came, he didn't even know that Nathan was there to accuse him of what he had done and get him to repent. He was shocked. And so Nathan had to come and point it out. Tell him what he had done wrong to get him to the place where he repented. So it's shocking how easy it is for us to overlook obvious sin in our lives. But the faster we get it under the blood, I'm going to tell you what, the more God's blessing can overtake us and change our lives for the better. Okay, the fourth thing then, Jesus never suffered accidents or calamities in his life before the, uh, before the cross. Do you see the pattern that I'm showing you? Uh, we need to mark this down. Christ never suffered in any of the areas that fell under the curse during his three-year ministry. Never once. Okay, what does that say to you then? If he didn't suffer in those areas, he does not intend us to. Curses fall under three main headings. Falls under sickness, poverty, and calamities. Sin and the consequences of sin come under the curse. And it would have disqualified Jesus to go to the cross to bear those things for us if he had suffered them before the cross. He had to be the spotless Lamb of God. He could not have borne the consequences of sin. He could not have borne the curses on the cross if he had ever sinned. Now, before the cross, he was tempted in all these ways, it says, like his way, but he never yielded to the sin. And Galatians 3.13 says, when he hanged on the tree, he became a curse for us so that we would not have to bear the consequences. Jesus paid it all, and there's absolutely nothing more that can be suffered there. And that's why uh, we need to know what the Bible's telling us. He's, he says that Christ has already suffered it for us, suffered it for our sake. So he's never, it, it's never God's will that we have to suffer under any of these things that Christ has taken for us. Now, a lot of people do it, and uh, they just say, well, you know, I, I, I just, there, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm going to sin. Everybody sins. I'm going to tell you what, God did not intend that. He intended us to be so fast with our repentance that literally we can walk totally free in this life. He is not calling us to suffer in any of these ways. He's not calling us to suffer in sickness. He's not causing us to suffer, calling us to suffer in poverty or any calamities. Now, when any of these things try to come on us, what we need to do, we need to rise up in arms and use our authority and refuse the attack. The minute, whether it be poverty, whether it be sickness, whether it be any kind of calamity, something inside of us should absolutely just explode. We need to stand up and say, no, that's not coming from God. I don't have to go there. We have that freedom, but I really don't know very many Christians who are using it. 
you know, it's, uh, but it's already been paid for. We're letting it waste. It's, it's going to waste because we're not using it. Now, too many Christians don't think anything about getting sick on occasion. Very seldom do you find anybody that, that's just shocked if they get sick. You know, they expect to have the flu sometime during the year. They, they expect a calamity to happen ever so often. Listen, when, when we think about that, something should rise up on the inside of us, and we should say, no, that does not line up with the Word of God. That does not line up with the Word of God. We should rise up in arms and attack any curse that tries to come because it's a violation of God's will. I want you to think about this. Hospitals and doctor offices are filled with as many Christians as non-Christians. Think about that. You go into a hospital or you go into a a doctor's office and you have as many Christians in there as you do non-Christians. That should not be. That's a violation of God's word. Christ paid such a high price to redeem us from these curses. And, you know, we're not being told to suffer in order to bring glory to God. We're told to absolutely do exactly the opposite. God has told us over and over that he has redeemed us from these things. He's borne these things for us. So to think that any, that staying in any one of these areas of curse can glorify God, it's an absolute slap in God's face. And we need to start renewing our mind to realize that. That is not pleasing to God. You know, I, I can remember expecting every year that I was going to get the flu, you know, get some kind of flu. That should be something that when, when we think that, something should just start screaming out of us, no, that does not line up with the Word of God. I do not have to have that. And if I'm having that, there's something wrong, I better look and see what's wrong. I need to repent you know, get a curse off of me, whatever it is. Because to think that any one of these ways can glorify God or is a part of God's will is absolutely wrong. It should not be tolerated by any Christian because what that would be saying is that Christ didn't do a complete job on Calvary. The cross experience is total and it is complete. It has been done. It's a, it's a done deal. In fact, when Jesus found people with disease, the first thing he did, whether it be defects or premature death or demonic oppression or calamity, any, any one of the world's idea of suffering, he stopped right then and set them free every single time. He would not have set some people free from these things and then told others, oh, you just have to endure it. You know, this is for you to endure. or This is for you to suffer. You've got to suffer it for my sake. You never find that in the Word of God. When in question, we need to always ask ourselves, number one, did Jesus suffer that way during his three-year experience on earth? Remember that question. Anything that comes against you, stop and ask yourself, did Jesus suffer that way in the three years that he spent on earth? If he didn't suffer in that way, then we are not to suffer that way either. So ask yourself, is this thing that I'm experiencing, is it a part of the curse that Jesus bore on the cross for me? If it is, then something should rise up on the inside of us, and we just say, I'm not receiving that. This is not coming from God, and we should never, ever put up with it. If it's a part of the curse, you have already suffered that in Christ 2,000 years ago. You've already suffered it, and you do not have to suffer it again. I didn't say that you'll never be sick. I I didn't say you'll never have a lack or calamity. I'm simply saying that none of those things are in his will. None of these things are right for his children. Therefore, we need to train ourselves not to accept those things, to stand up and say, no, that doesn't belong to me. Christ has already borne it. I don't have to put up with it. Now, there may be a battle at times. You know, we're living in a fallen world, so sometimes you have to stand up and and you have to do a little bit of warfare to say no. But I'm not seeing Christians do warfare. I'm seeing Christians just take it and say, well, that's just, we're living in this fallen world. You know, that's just part of it to be sick at times. No, it's not part of it. And it's not what God ever intended. And something on the inside of us needs to click and say, no, I'm not going there because that's not God's will, you know. But so we need to get angry rather than just sit back and take it. Get angry, take authority over it and refuse to accept it. We are not suffering for Jesus. We're not suffering for his glory when we suffer in these areas. What we're doing, we're yielding to the enemy. It's exactly what we're doing because he has already taken every bit of it for us on himself. Sin, sickness, poverty, calamity, they're not in God's will for his children. Therefore, don't confuse it with the suffering that we're called to do for God's glory. 
You know, we say that, and I've heard so many Christians say that, and we need to have our mind renewed to the Word of God. That's why I wanted us to look at this and see what is in the will of God and what's not in His will. Okay, now we've explored ways in which we're not called to suffer, but the Bible does plainly tell us that as a Christian, we will suffer for Christ. In fact, we read earlier in Philippians 1 verse 29 that it's granted to you to suffer for Christ's sake. Okay, we need to ask ourselves, not just say, okay, I'm just supposed to suffer for Jesus because it tells me to. No, we need to ask ourselves, how on earth are we supposed to suffer the right way for Christ? There's three main areas in which Christ suffered during his three-year ministry time before the cross. And we will and we should suffer in those three areas as well. Sometimes we just say, well, we're supposed to suffer. No, look at the word of God. Look at, look at the life of Jesus. He tells us how to suffer, and he's going to tell us how not to suffer. We, we can't just make it up in our own mind and decide for ourselves. Okay, I, I, I know I'm supposed to suffer, so I might as well suffer this. No, 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 no. He is our example, and suffering in these three areas that I'm fixing to give to you, these will bring glory to God. So how are we called to suffer in a way that glorifies God? Okay, the first way we're called to suffer is in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. It says, all who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. Okay, persecution is not sickness. Sickness is a part of the curse, but persecution for the sake of the gospel, that's not a part of the curse. In John 15, verse 20, it says, A slave is not greater than his master. So if the world persecuted Jesus, it will persecute you. I'm going to, um, to say this again because persecution for living a godly life is not a curse. There's a reward for it. But if you're not rewarded, you're certainly not rewarded for suffering from a curse. We're just not. He tells us to fight that. We're told to say no to anything that falls under the curse. Matthew 5.10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, I found this quotation from Catherine Marshall, so I wrote it down. She said, I could find no record of Jesus implying that an individual's spiritual state or the kingdom of God would be furthered by ill health. She said, I didn't find that anywhere. Not once did he say that sickness was a blessing. I was impressed with the fact that there is no beatitude for the sick. Where, uh, where it says, blessed are the sick, for they shall, no, it's not there. While there is a beatitude for those who are suffering persecution, persecution and the curse are two different things. Don't ever get them mixed up. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For righteousness' sake is the key phrase. That's your key phrase. We're blessed when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Okay, now when a person is persecuted for sin or for some kind of wrongdoing that they've done, or if they're persecuted for some kind of a wrong attitude, that's not, per uh, that's not persecution. Only when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, I'm not particularly wanting a show of hands, but have you ever talked about something you, you were talked about or you were harassed, and you really thought you were suffering persecution for Jesus? And you thought, well, I'm just suffering for Jesus. And you later, later found out that it was the ungodly way in which you responded that brought on the persecution. See, too often what we do, we think we're suffering persecution when in reality we just got caught some flack because we got in the flesh. And if we'll look at it, many times we'll find out, no, we weren't suffering persecution, we were, we were in the flesh. And that's not godly persecution. But there will be times when you're persecuted just because you're believing God, just because you stood up for what was right. And when that happens, you will be rewarded for that kind of persecution. Now, persecution is a very godly word. Don't ever think of it as a bad word because it's not. 2 Corinthians 1.5 in the Amplified Bible tells us that with true persecution, I'm talking about true persecution, comes three things, consolation, comfort, and encouragement. You need to write those down. And if we trust God for it, we can enter into an amazing rest right in the middle of the persecution. It's kind of like an invisible shield of protection. It just goes up, and that, that shield is real. It's a shield of comfort that's coming from the Holy Spirit. It's a shield of consolation that lets you know that the battle's worth it. And it's a shield of encouragement that the battle's not going to last forever. You need to take those three down and, and realize that that's what God gives you when you're going through persecution. 
Now, this is a hint that will help. Every single time when I found a scripture referring to a Christian being called to suffer for the glory of God, every single time without exception, it was referring to suffering persecution. Every time. Never sickness. Now, this will help if you remember that Jesus told us that we would suffer persecution, but he never told us that we would suffer sickness and poverty. Never. Never once did he. Now, if sickness and poverty are there, then what we need to do, we need to get on our face before God and find out where the open door is. Repent and get that door closed. You know, we can't be like the rest of the Christians that I see in the world. That, oh, I'm just sick. I get sick every winter. When that's just the time of year, we all get sick. And we run to the doctor. I'm not saying the doctor's wrong. I'm just saying receiving it in the first place is wrong. We've got to find out what opened the door and get that door closed. It may be a curse that's handed down in the family bloodline. And it may be something where we need to repent and say, Father, this has been on our bloodline for a long time. I've looked in my family and I've seen things that, that we have suffered with in the family and it was a curse, and it was handed down the bloodline. Okay, that means we need to repent and get the blood over and get it removed out of our life and off the lives of our children. Okay, the number two way in which Jesus suffered before the cross was in the area of temptation. Luke 4 says that Jesus was tempted, tested, and tried by the devil. Hebrews 4.15 says Jesus was tempted in all ways like his way, yet without sinning. Okay, why is refusing to yield to a temptation considered an area of suffering? Why is that? Okay, it's because when we put the flesh down, when we refuse to yield to a temptation, that is a godly way now of suffering. And the enemy doesn't like it, I can promise you. That is one way of giving glory to God, and he even tells us how to do it. The Word tells us how. Now, it's interesting that every time God talks about temptation, he uses the same word. I want you to take note of the word that he uses because we need to use it all the time. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 says, Be of a sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in the faith. You need to circle that word. What does God tell us to do? He tells us resist. Okay, that's how we suffer for Jesus in the face of temptation. We resist and we say no. We don't just fall for it, we say no. James 4, 7, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. How do we resist? We say no. We say no to the enemy, we say no to the flesh. Luke 10, 19 tells us that we have been given authority over all of the temptations of the enemy. We've been given authority over that. We don't need to... to fall for these things over and over and say, well, that's just life. No, it's not just life. It's from the enemy. And we've been given authority over it. And that's why we can rejoice when a trial comes. Jesus won every time when he suffered temptation. And he won by using God's word. And he has given us the same exact authority to resist. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. You know, it's a big comfort to me to know that it doesn't matter what kind of temptation Satan puts in front of me. God has given us everything. He provides a way of escape every single time. Now, I'm not saying we take that way of escape. Unfortunately, most Christians don't, but that way of escape is provided. He's saying, I know the temptation's coming, but I have a way of escape. If you'll take it, it'll work every single time. Our means of escape is simply to do whatever it is the Word tells us to do, and when we don't take that escape, we are not suffering for Christ's sake. We're suffering for wrongdoing. That's all it is. Okay, the number three area in which Christ suffered was in the area of compassion. Now, I'm going to show you four ways in which Jesus suffered compassion when the world would not receive him. In Matthew 23, verse 37, on the mountain overlooking Jerusalem, Jesus grieved, and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you like a hen gathers his chick, but you wouldn't come to me. I stood on that very mountain, and I realized I could have been standing right where Jesus was standing. I realized that when he cried out over the city. From that mountain on top, you can look down and you can see Jerusalem. And it does look like you could reach down and put it in your arms and pull it up to you. That's what it looks like. 
And that's what he must have had to have been seeing when he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I, I could have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks. Now, Jesus suffered deep compassion for a lost and dying world, so deep that he was willing to die for it. So we need to ask ourselves, when was the last time that I stood maybe up on Bangs Hill overlooking my city and wept bitterly because so many people were headed straight for hell? You know, when was the last time that I suffered compassion when I saw someone who was lost and dying and, and not even knowing the difference and headed for hell? You know, years ago, the pastor at our First Baptist Church, uh, he had gone out to California on a visit. And he was sitting in a restaurant overlooking an eight-lane highway. And he said thousands of people were speeding by hour after hour. And he said as he watched that, he suddenly burst into tears sitting there in the restaurant because he realized that the vast majority of those people were speeding straight to hell. And so he began to suffer compassion. So he came home, he packed, and he moved to California to win souls. We need to ask ourselves, when was the last time that I wept over my city? When was the last time that I wept over my nation? I think lately a lot of us have been weeping over our nation. <laughs> I think we've been doing that, you know. But when was the last time I did that, and, and what did I do about it? You know, when we've been seeing some things that are going on, a lot of us have been falling on our face, and that's what God wants us to do, fall on our face, start repenting uh, for our city, repenting for our nation. Godly compassion is a force. It's an actual force that motivates us to do something and, and not just do anything, but to go to God and say, okay, Lord, I see what's happening, and, and I want to be a part of your answer. Show me what to do. We don't need to run out on our own, but we do need to be willing to do whatever it takes and find out from God what he wants. Reasoning can never lead us to right actions. Never can. Okay, I want to give you a, a challenge Count through the Gospels and see how many times it says that Jesus was moved with compassion and healed the sick or raised the dead or, or whatever it was that he did. When compassion came on Jesus, he always did something. Every time you see the word compassion in your New Testament, right after it tells you what Jesus did. Almost every time before Jesus did something significant, the Bible says that he was first moved with compassion. Start circling those in your Bible and number them. I looked up the word compassion and it meant a deep sorrow for the suffering of another person with the urge to help. That's the definition. Now, compassion is different from sympathy. So don't get the two mixed up. The definition of sympathy now means to get in harmony or agreement with the problem that another person is having and have pity for that person. Okay, there's no place in that definition now where it says take sympathy and move to do something for that person. That's not what that definition is. You just feel sorry for what they're going through. And Satan loves that, you know. You can feel sorry for someone all day long. It's not going to do one bit of good. One person grieves and before it's over, Satan gets us into sympathy. And then he has several people grieving with no one really doing anything about it. But compassion is completely different. Compassion is a godly word. And the definition of compassion now is a deep sorrow for the suffering that you see or the trouble that you see happening to another person with the urge to help them get them out of their problem. Compassion does something. And that's because compassion is a spiritual force from the Holy Spirit. It's not just an emotion. Sympathy is an emotion. But compassion now, you're going to feel it. But you do something about it. Compassion doesn't get into the mental state and just suffer with the person. Compassion is a spiritual force. It affects our emotions, all right, but it causes change every single time. Now, while Jesus was on earth, the Holy Spirit manifested God's love through Christ in the form of compassion, and that compassion was the tangible love. I'm talking about love that you could feel, that you can, you can have it do something that helps you. That compassion was a tangible love that touched people and changed their circumstances. Now, the love of God was manifested and demonstrating in the form of compassion as it flowed out of Jesus and flowed to the people. That compassion was God's love in tangible form because love must be translated into something tangible before it will ever be able to do any good. Now, Mark 16, verse 15 tells us to go into the world and preach the gospel, but without compassion... 
we're never, be able, never going to be able to do that effectively. Suffering that kind of compassion is how we suffer for Christ's sake because what it does, it motivates us and moves us to do something that will change the situation. Every time Jesus felt compassion, he did something and it, and it changed the situation. Matthew 9, 35. And Jesus was going about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness, and seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion. Go through your Bible and start marking how many times you see the word compassion. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast with sheep without a shepherd. And when he saw that, then he did something. Okay, this is the next way now that leads uh, in which Jesus suffered compassion. When he saw the multitudes distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd, he felt that compassion. He hurt for them. And he didn't just stop there. He healed all of the sicknesses, all of the diseases, and then he took labors and sent them into the harvest. True compassion always causes us to do something. We too can allow that compassion, God's love in tangible form, something you can reach out and, and take hold of. We let that Compassion, that love in tangible form, start flowing through us to meet needs. And that's why Mark 16, 15 through 18 not only says go into the world and preach the gospel, but it also says those who believe will cast out demons, they'll speak with new tongues, they'll lay hands on the sick, they will recover. In other words, they do something just like Jesus did. We're called to see the troubled world and suffer the same compassion that Jesus suffered. And then we're called to be led by the Holy Spirit to do something about it. He died to make it possible for us then to take over in his name. Okay, the third way in which Jesus suffered compassion was when he saw people struggling under satanic oppression. The Bible says he felt compassion and he delivered them. A large amount of Jesus' ministry was casting out demons. And too many churches today, they don't even have a deliverance ministry. You know, that's bound to be such an abomination in God's eyes. In Matthew 12, 28, Jesus said, If I cast out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God will come upon you. And demons of fear and demons of doubt and demons of unbelief and so forth. I personally believe everyone needs to have a certain amount of deliverance. I personally believe that. When demons are cast out, then the kingdom of God, the righteousness, the peace, and the joy, the Bible says, can come upon us. Our goal needs to be that we get set free. We start yielding ourselves to God and get set free and then help others get set free. The Bible says, freely as you have received, now freely give. Okay, this is the fourth way in which Jesus suffered compassion. In Luke 7, verse 12, as he approached the gates of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of the mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city had, had withdrawn. And when Jesus saw her, he felt compassion. He said, don't weep. And he came up and touched the coffin and said, Arise. A dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. When Jesus saw the widowed woman bearing her only son in premature death, the Bible says that he felt compassion. More than likely, that was her only means of support, and he felt compassion, and that made him do something. It's not compassion if we don't do anything. It's only sympathy. And he raised him from the dead. When Mary and Martha were grieved over the death of uh, their brother Lazarus, Jesus suffered so much compassion that he wept, and then he raised him from the dead. And we're called to do the same thing, to raise from the dead, to heal the sick. Okay, I want to remind you again not to get compassion mixed up with sympathy. Sympathy is always a perversion of compassion. Sympathy has no answers. It just feels sorry for somebody. Compassion suffers because it feels the hurt of other people, but compassion finds an answer and does something. We are to suffer compassion in all of these ways in which Jesus suffered compassion. We too will suffer when we see a lost and dying world and we'll have an answer for the world. We too suffer with compassion when we see people distressed and burdened down, sheep without a shepherd, oppressed with sickness and disease. And then God will tell us what to do. God said, go in my name, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely, as you have received, now freely give. Now, I've searched the scriptures, and I could not find one other way in which Christ suffered before the cross. I gave you all the ways that I found through the New Testament. Colossians 1.24, Paul said, I, I make up what is lacking in Christ's suffering. And that's a scripture that so many people say, well, we have to suffer. 
because Paul says, I make up what's lacking in Christ's suffering. What possibly could have been lacking in Christ's suffering? But I want you to think about this. This is important. Jesus, in his humanity, could only take God's compassion to the people that were around him because he was in human form. So he could only help those people that came to him while he was on earth. And so he ministered in human form. Then Paul came along, and he made up what was lacking in Christ's suffering because he had people coming to him, and he took care of the people that came to him. And now we, too, we're going to make up what's lacking in Christ's suffering because he couldn't minister to everybody in his earthly form. You know, but he taught us how to do it, and now we are to extend that compassion. And God's answer now, to our, uh, that's our, his answer to our generation. He, he said, I want you to do, he said, I only could do so much when I was on earth. But he said, now, my Holy Spirit in you, you make up what is lacking and you do it for your generation. So don't let anyone put any other kind of sickness on you because when we do, it causes us out of a lack of knowledge to give up some of our God-given promises. And more when we give up those promises, we are not effective in our Christian walk. And we'll be right there in the hospital and right there in the doctor's office, right there along with all the hundreds of other Christians because we don't know what has already been paid for, what's already been given to us. Father, in Jesus' name, with all of my heart, Father, I'm asking you to just start ministering to us and, and, and let us see, Father, that we're not supposed to look like the world. We're not supposed to just... It, it's, it's not a sin to go to a doctor. We know that, Lord. But it is a sin when we just think, well, that's just my lot in life. Father, that's where it's a sin. You want us to rise up and realize what Christ has, has already done for us and literally take your hand, Lord, and let you walk us through every day ministering to the people we come in contact with whether they need a healing or whether they need a deliverance or, or, or whether they just need uh, your compassion shown to them. Father, use us. Help us to walk in the footsteps that you walked in. Help us to be the extension, Father. That's what you've called us to be. Father, we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.